Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Good morning, church. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles, please, for the reading of Scripture. This morning, we're going to continue in our series, Teaching Through Paul's First Letter to the Corinthians. So this morning, we're going to be hearing from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Church, hear now the words of the one true and living God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Here at Hope Chapel, one of our central convictions is that we preach slowly and steadily through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. And God's Word is very much the focal point of our gathering. And part of our philosophy of ministry is that we don't choose the topics that we're going to study. Rather, we let Scripture make that determination for us. As your leaders, we pray, um, and, and we pray, and we seek God uh, as to what he would have us preach through in his word. And he has us in a season where we're preaching through this Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, and because we're committed to preaching through scripture, sometimes the contents of scripture confront us. And sometimes the contents of scripture are sensitive and maybe even potentially uncomfortable. Yet scripture speaks, amen? And so the passage of scripture before us today is a passage about the body and about sex. Um, Some of your headings for this passage in your Bible might read, the body is the Lord's. Um, Others flee sexual immorality. And this passage is very much like kind of a two-sided coin. On one side, this passage gives us a Christian theology of the human body. But on the other side, it directly confronts sinful sexual practices. And so in this text, Paul's main purpose is to present to the Corinthians um, a proper, ordered Christian theology of the body, but his subordinate point is to address and correct their sexual sin in light of God's purposes for the body. And so Paul's argument in this text really teaches us three big ideas. First, God has reserved our bodies. Second, God has destined our bodies. And third, God now owns our bodies. So first, God has reserved our bodies. Look with me again at verses 12 through 13. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
So Paul begins this passage with a series of statements that are a little bit puzzling at first glance. Um, Some of your Bible translations might place quotation marks around all or parts of these statements. Some of your Bibles don't put any quotation marks. We have good reason to believe that Paul is actually quoting um, sayings or slogans or maxims that the Corinthians um, were invoking. Um, He is doing so in order to confront their very, uh, shall we say, libertine attitude towards human sexuality. And what he wants to do is he wants to quote Uh, what they are saying to justify their own sin so that he can bring the truth of the gospel to bear on those attempts. Uh, The the Corinthians evidently expressed and defended this very, very libertine attitude through several statements or sayings, and they had gotten back to Paul probably by way of the letter that they wrote to him before he wrote this letter back to them. Now, the first point I want us to see in this text is that sexual sin harms. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are what? Helpful. All things are lawful for me. Apparently, this is what they were saying. Now, we don't know the precise origin of this slogan. There's a number of plausible possibilities. Um, It is very possible that as newer Christians, that they were kind of twisting or distorting their newfound freedom in Christ. They understood, because Paul had taught them, that they were no longer under the law, but under grace. It's also possible that they were simply invoking a very common philosophical maxim that had been kind of woven into the social fabric of their culture. But regardless of the source or origin of this saying, it's clear that he is quoting them, And it's clear that Paul's concern is not the saying itself, but how the saying was being applied. That is what Paul is confronting. So they're saying all things are lawful. And Paul responds by saying, but not all things are helpful. Now we know that the context of this passage um, concerns sexual immorality, sexual sin. And... I think it's really important just pastorally to address something before we go any further. Um, I I just want to address the problem of sexual exceptionalism. And what I mean by that is this. Many people today think of the church as predominantly concerned with sexual sin at the expense of being concerned with other types of sin. That sexual sin is the absolute worst kind of sin, and that is utterly impossible to come back from. And so I want to clarify that this kind of an exceptional view of sexual sin is not biblical and it is not true. Um, There is a sense, I think, in which modern Christianity, modern evangelicalism has overshamed sexual sin and undershamed other sins. Greed, gluttony, gossip malice, unforgiveness, idleness, etc. It's absolutely not the case that sexual sin is the worst kind of sin. It is absolutely possible, I want to affirm, to receive forgiveness for it and to come back from it. Amen? Now, if you don't believe me, just remember Paul's words at the very end of the passage that we looked at last weekend. He concluded that passage right before he transitions to this passage with these words. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so we want to affirm that God's grace covers sexual sin. Amen? Now, I want you to see that as we start this passage, um, Paul has just affirmed to these Christians that that is who who they were, and it's no longer who they are. That God's grace has covered their sin, continues to cover their sin, but they need to not continue walking in it. So back to our text, verse 12. All things are lawful to me, but Paul says, but not all things are helpful. 
And the word helpful here could also be translated advantageous or beneficial. So Paul is saying to them, your sexual conduct is not actually to your benefit, but actually to your detriment. And now I want to make very explicit what Paul is going to gradually convey through the progression of this passage. Sexual sin may not be the worst kind of sin, but it is most assuredly the most sinister kind of sin. And while we wouldn't say that sexual sin is the most grievous kind of sin, Scripture consistently presents it as the most spiritually defiling, emasculating, and degrading kind of sin. And perhaps nowhere in Scripture is this danger more evidently expressed than in Proverbs chapter 5. We read there a warning for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. And the point here in this proverb is that sexual sin here embodied by the adulterous woman, but universally sexual sin is powerfully enticing. At first, it seems innocent, good even. It seems natural, natural, satisfying, beneficial. And yet no other sin operates with such devastating bait and switch. And though there is an element of self-deception, we would say operative in every sin that we can become tangled up in, sexual sin is unequaled in its deceptiveness. Look at Proverbs 5, 4 through 5. But in the end, in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. And then this picture is sharply contrasted with sex as God has designed it to be experienced within the security of a marriage covenant. The proverb continues, may your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The Bible's anything but bashful when it comes to sex. And if you're skeptical, just read Song of Solomon. Over and over again, the Bible affirms this. It affirms that God designed sex to be good and fulfilling. Sex is a gift from God, amen? And it is his will for us as humans to experience sexual flourishing. And God designed sex to be powerful. But when it is wielded outside the context for which God created it, it has devastating effects. Therefore, the Bible's advice for avoiding sexual sin is stark and clear. Proverbs 5.8, keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Stay far away from it is the message of Scripture because it is powerful and its effects are devastating. Marriages are destroyed. Friendships are destroyed. Families are torn apart. Health is compromised, even lost. Possessions are lost. Careers are destroyed. There can be cascading generational consequences to sexual sin in families. The Bible confronts our modern notion of casual sex and calls it out as a lie, as a deception. And here's the thing, being particularly sinister, sexual sin not only deceives, it also robs. In the end, this kind of sin will always rob you of your joy and replace it with misery, destroy your peace, and leave you with distress. It will take your integrity and substitute it for shame. It will erode your holiness and leave you dirty. All these dangers are real. But it gets worse. Paul continues. He's, he quotes them again. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You see, Paul understood that there is a dominating aspect to sexual sin. It not only harms, it also controls. It enslaves. It subdues. It masters. And it always starts small. Some compromise here. 
or compromise there. Imperceptibly slow erosion of moral conviction, steady disintegration of personal integrity, once content fantasizing, soon fantasies are enhanced with images on a screen, images turn to videos, eventually screens are not sufficient, fantasy aches to be acted out, one encounter, another encounter, hookups begin to blur together, the appetite continues to grow, life passes quickly all the while, before you know it, once small and seemingly trivial sin has metastasized into a monster that is out of control. You know you should say no. Maybe you want to say no, but you can't say no. And where there was once a sense of control, there is now only the defeating awareness that you do not control your desires, but rather your desires control you. Now, those of you who are young, and especially young and unmarried, please hear me. The greatest commodity that sexual sin threatens to rob you of, to steal from you, is your time. You see, time is the most value, valuable commodity in this life. Money can be lost and regained. Possessions can be forfeited and reacquired. Health can wane and recover. Career can be lost and rebuilt. But we can never recover time. The proverb continues, verses 9 through 11, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Over the course of my eight years of ministry here, I've had the great privilege of ministering to many young people. And one of the most heartbreaking scenarios that I have several times, too many times encountered, would be when a young woman comes into the church, maybe she's coming into the church for the first time, or coming back into the church, coming back to the faith, um, and she has come out of a series of serial failed relationships, been sexually involved in all of them, and all of those serial relationships ate up so much of her time and life that now she's pressing into her 30s, approaching her 40s, and all of a sudden a sense of panic is setting in. Hey, I'm getting older, the clock is ticking, I want to get married, I want to find a man. Uh, all these relationships failed. She looks around, doesn't see a suitor, and time after time after time, because of the sense of urgency, somebody on the outside will catch her eye, lure her in, and before you know it, she's gone. Because the sin has robbed her of so much time. But what's even more infuriating, what I've encountered many times as well, is young men in the church. Young men in the church who engage these same young women... And instead of leading them into marriage, lead them into bed. Now at this point in this passage, we start to see Paul's pastoral strategy. Before he can even tell them or will tell them to stop it, he first confronts their rationalizations with truth. Paul knows he can't simply say, stop it, knock it off, and expect that to work. Why? Because they are self-deceived in their sin. They are full of rationalizations. And what is the only antidote to deception? Truth. And so here is the first truth that Paul puts forward. The first truth is that our bodies are holy. We are Christians. And as Christians, our bodies are holy. Look with me at the first half of verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Okay, before I go any further, I want to ask you for just a moment of radical focus. Can I have a moment of radical focus? There is some debate about where the quotation ends in this verse. Um, some 
translations have the quote ending halfway through the verse. Some translations have the quote ending at the end of the verse. Uh, some translations think that uh, Paul is quoting them. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he is responding and God will destroy both one and the other. Others believe that this whole sentence is a Corinthian slogan. I actually prefer the latter, and I think that the latest NIV translation translates this verse best. If we go to the next slide. So I think that they, that Paul is quoting the Corinthians and that this is the attitude they're expressing. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. They were operating from a philosophical worldview backdrop where Influenced by Greek philosophy, they held in that culture the soul or the immaterial aspect of humanity to be fundamentally good and the body or the material aspect of humanity to be fundamentally bad and ultimately destined to be annihilated. And this stands in stark contrast to Christian dualism, which holds up the soul and the body as both good by virtue of being created by God. And so as we look at this argument, I want to just kind of suggest that we call this argument the that's what it is made for argument, because that's the essence of what they're saying. Just as food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. Eating is a response to a basic human need. Sex is a response to a basic human need. And just as we shouldn't place artificial constraints on one basic human need, we shouldn't place artificial constraints on another basic human need. Because one bodily function is very much like another bodily function. After all, sex is just as natural as eating. Furthermore, if our material bodies are bad and destined to be annihilated, then it doesn't really matter all that much with who or with how many we share our bodies with. Does that make sense? Doesn't this argument sound remarkably modern? And how does Paul respond? Verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. This is a profound statement by Paul. He's saying that for the Christian, for the one who has been genuinely converted to Christ, for the one who has been born again, to use Jesus' language from John chapter 3, for the one who has been regenerated and given a new heart and indwelt with the Holy Spirit and justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for that one, Paul is saying, God is the one who determines meaning and purpose of the body. God is the one who has ultimate authority over our bodies. And we all recognize that this runs right in the face of our culture today, just as it ran right in the face of the culture then. A culture today especially which insists my body, my choice in virtually every context, and in virtually every context sexually where consent is the only operative criteria for condone, condone sexual behavior. So negatively, Paul says to them, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now the word that he uses in the Greek that is translated in our Bible, sexual immorality, is the Greek word porneia. What does that sound like? Yes, this is the word from which we get pornography. And porneia was the broadest term uh, for sexual sin in the Greek language, uh, embracing any form of of intercourse between two or more individuals, two individuals that are not united in heterosexual marriage. So Paul says, the body is not meant for porneia, but positively he says, the body is meant for the Lord. The body is meant for Jesus. So if you're a Christian, Paul is saying that your body is profoundly important. He is saying that your body has been set apart by God himself to the Lord Jesus. It is the instrument of our being as humans by which we serve our Lord. It is the means by which we glorify him. 
our bodies have been consecrated to a holy purpose. So God has reserved our bodies, saving us from the harmfulness of sexual sin. And he has set apart our bodies, consecrated them as instruments to the Lord Jesus, as holy vessels of service. But next, God has also destined our bodies. Look at verses 14 through 17. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So this section presents a second danger of sexual sin, and that is sexual sin reduces, it debases. In these next four verses, Paul takes one more step forward in developing his theology of the body. Not only are our bodies set apart, consecrated, holy in service to the Lord, but they are also members of Christ. And being members, there's a sense in which our bodies have been united to Christ. That there's more than simply a spiritual correspondence between us and Christ. There is, in some sense, also a physical correspondence as well. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So in this moment, in this text, Paul focuses his attention narrowly on prostitution. So first, this gives him an opportunity to advance his argument about our bodies being members of Christ. Second, he makes the point that we must not make ourselves as members a point of contact in linking any sphere or a specific sphere of immorality to Christ. Third, he uses this moment to correct uh, an extremely prevalent sexual practice in the ancient world. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of cultural context. Are you with me? Today, many popular critics of the Bible and of the Bible's conception of human sexuality mistakenly assume that when the Bible was written, society was sexually prudish and oppressed. Uh, that the Bible was not speaking to an advanced, liberated, free society like our modern one. The problem is this perspective is completely inconsistent with the historical record. Um, in fact, historical consistency would require us to admit that the ancient cultures that the biblical writers were immediately speaking to were far more sexually progressive than our culture. Uh, in broader Greco-Roman culture, in many circles, it was very common and not frowned upon for grown men to engage in sexual liaisons with young boys. Pedophilia was accepted in many circles. Prostitution is against the law uh, in many parts of our culture. But it was not only legal, it was also encouraged in the New Testament period, and especially in a place like Corinth. Many of the ancient cults employed temple prostitutes that worshipers would visit when paying homage to their paying gods. And so Paul is writing to churches that existed in a culture that was extremely libertine. Does that make sense? But what's Paul doing here? He's insisting to these Christians in that context that there is a mutually exclusive relationship between using our bodies sacrificially and using our bodies sinfully. He's saying these are fundamentally incompatible for the Christian. He continues in verse 16. Or do you not know that he was joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written the two will become one flesh. Here's what scripture tells us. Sex creates an enduring bond. Now, this is supported by modern physiology, which attests to the biochemical and psychological bond that is created by sex. Um, the verb that is translated join here uh, implies something very specific. It implies that the man 
and the prostitute are actually wedded together even if they don't share wedding vows. And they may regard their encounter as only a temporary connection, he to gain sexual release, she to gain a living, but it is more entangling than that. Neither one is totally free of the other when they part company. Rather, they know each other. And that kind of knowing can never be unknown. But he continues in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So Paul's point is that you cannot simultaneously be one flesh with a prostitute or with somebody immorally and be one spirit with Christ. It is a contradiction and a perversion even at once to be united to her through sexual union and to be united to him through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Church, we're Christians, amen? We are Christians. And as such, we affirm that the very foundation of human dignity is that each and every human being, regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of you know, geographical positioning, every human being is created in the imago Dei, in the very image of the one true and living God. Amen? And here is the effect of sexual sin. The effect of sexual sin is that it ultimately reduces image bearers of the one true and living God to nothing more than transactions, goods, and services to be consumed and disposed of at our sole discretion. We live in a time when human beings intrinsically endowed with dignity and purpose by virtue of their image bearing are reduced to nothing more than a swipe left or a swipe right. And the tragic irony is this. While our enlightened culture thinks that it is sexually liberated and advanced, it has actually debased one of the greatest gifts that God has given to humanity to cherish. The very apex of human intimacy and pleasure given to us by God to be enjoyed in the stable and exclusive context of a covenant bond, imbued with the potent power to create human life. This thing which the Bible holds up is so precious and dignified and sacred. It has been reduced in our culture to nothing more than an orgasm. Paul says, not so for the Christian. We are not to reduce. We are not to be reduced. Because by God's grace, we have been redeemed and renewed by the blood of Christ and by the power of his spirit. Not only have we been redeemed and renewed, we also anticipate the day when our whole, our whole self, body and soul, will be made perfect forever. And that leads us to Paul's next point. Our bodies will be raised. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Not only are our bodies reserved for the Lord, set apart holy, not only are our bodies members of Christ, his body, the church, so too will our bodies be raised just as his was. Paul's going to come back to this and develop it in much more detail in chapter 15. But for our purposes, we need to understand and they need to they needed to understand that there is continuity between the bodies that we have now and the bodies that we will have for eternity. The Bible does not promise us redemption from the body, but rather redemption of the body. The Bible conveys that God's plan, his sovereign program, runs from creation to new creation. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things what? New. That includes a new creation with a new cosmos and a new restored earth that we inhabit. And in his resurrection, scripture tells us that Jesus was the first fruits of that new creation. And Paul says, just as God raised the Lord, he will also raise us. And because the body matters enough to be raised by God, what we do with our bodies now also matters. 
Finally, God now owns our bodies. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So our bodies are for the Lord. Our bodies are members of Christ. Our bodies are joined to the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Our bodies will also be resurrected and restored when Jesus returns. But there's more. Or do you not know, he says, that your body is a what? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So this leads us to the final danger of sexual sin that's expressed in this passage. Sexual sin pollutes. It pollutes. In salvation, through regenerating dead hearts, through justifying us from our record of sin, through sanctifying us from the stain of sin, God has chosen in his grace and in his mercy to make us living temples. Living temples of the one true and living God. What is a temple? We know that in the Old Testament, the temple was located in Jerusalem. Uh, The temple signified the place where the Lord very specially dwelt with his people. The holiness of the temple was signified by the very many chambers that were built inside of it, the many compartments that one had to pass through before finally entering the most holy place, a place of holiness and perfection, uh, architecturally a perfect cube, perfect dimensions. And indeed, only the high priest could enter the most holy place where the Lord had manifested his presence, where he dwelt, and only the high priest could not only enter it, but his entrance was limited to one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. And when he made that entrance, special care had to be taken not to defile or to stain that which God had set apart as holy. Now God's holy presence is no longer limited to the temple because he indwells the church, his body, and even more, the bodies of individual believers. Back in chapter 3, when we worked through chapter 3, Paul exhorted the Corinthians to unity and to purity to preserve the sanctity of the body, capital B, the church, which is God's temple. God inhabits his people. Now we move to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Paul exhorts the Corinthians individually, not corporately, and he says, your body lowercase b, is God's temple, that God takes up residence, not just in his people corporately, but in his people individually through the Holy Spirit. What greater privilege could we have than being living temples of the living God? But what we need to see is that sexual immorality pollutes God's dwelling. And God's dwelling, as we see from Scripture, and as we know from God's character and attributes, God's dwelling is always the most sacred space. What sexual sin in the life of a Christian effectively accomplishes is this. It transforms God's holy dwelling place into a moral garbage dump. And that is why Paul says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And all of this finally leads Paul to the culmination of his argument. It leads him to his most potent point. Um, Christians must avoid sexual immorality because our bodies have been purchased. Verse 19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Please notice that he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. What has this whole passage been about? It's been about our bodies. But he doesn't say, your body is not your own, for your body was bought with a price. He says, you, 
And that's because this is the view that the Bible presents to us of our humanity. You see, we do not have our bodies. We are our bodies. We're integrated beings, uh, body and soul. You are your body. You are your soul. And if there's one clear dynamic going on in this text, it's that you can't harm the body without harming the soul, and you can't harm the soul without also harming the body. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, he says. Note the presence of the word for in the middle of that statement. It indicates that you were bought with a price is the reason that you are not your own. Now, Paul's words here would have had far greater effect, far more punch with his contemporaries. We're separated by 2,000 years of language, history, and culture. But the Corinthians, along with the church in Rome, along with the church in Ephesus, uh, and many of the other churches that Paul wrote to, they would have immediately understood that this language was borrowed from the ancient institution of slavery. When Paul says, you were bought, He's not referring to the purchase of our freedom. Rather, he's referring to the transfer of our ownership, lordship, and allegiance. Remember the beginning of the text? What did Paul say? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, enslaved by anything. Nothing should be allowed in the life of the Christian that will dominate or enslave them because the Christian has a new master, the Christian has a new Lord. And Jesus makes this clear in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one, no one, no one, he goes on to say, can serve God and money. And Paul would add in this section, no one, no one, no one can serve God and sex. And the payment that secured our ownership was nothing less than the precious blood and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is what Paul refers to over and over and over again, to shake them out of what Andrew referred to as their gospel amnesia. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says later in chapter 1, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So later on the basis of the truth, the work of Christ on the cross, he calls the Corinthians to cleanse out the old leaven that they may be a new lump as they really are unleavened, because the work of Christ has already been applied to them. He goes on to say, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The payment has been made in church, with Christ's work completed and applied to us, received, of course, by grace, through faith. Amen? Everything about us now belongs to our risen Lord, including our bodies. You see, here's the transaction. His body for our bodies. His body for our bodies. Now we have worked our way painstakingly through these verses. And so we should ask, what's the takeaway? What, what is the application? I want to point out that every thing in this text up to this point um, has fallen into one of two classifications. Um, all the statements, all the things Paul has said have either been um, uh, 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 indicative matters, meaning matters of fact. Uh, uh, an indicative matter is like, you know, um, we're all in the room. True? That's an indicative statement. So everything Paul has been saying has been either indicative he has brought truth to bear on them and on their attitudes or interrogative. He has interacted with, interacted with their attitudes, with their statements, and with their behavior. He's done nothing but bring the truth to bear on them. But now it's at the end that Paul gives two 
imperatives. It's after all of this that he gives them a takeaway. Why? Because the command, the imperative, follows as a consequence of the truth. And so Paul gives them two, not suggestions, but commands. First, he says, flee sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Just like Proverbs 5, run from it. Sever the ties. Put an end to it. Right? Delete the app. Draw the line. If you're living in sexual sin, Paul says, repent. Repent. And the force of the verb indicates that this isn't a one-time action, that we flee from it and we continue to flee from it. This is a continuous, ongoing repentance for every Christian. His point is simply that there is no place for sexual immorality in the life of a genuinely converted Christian. I want to make something very clear, though. Paul is not saying, keep your body holy so that God will give you his spirit and make you his temple. That is not what he's saying. Rather, what he is saying is because God has made you holy and he has made you a temple and he has put his Holy Spirit within you, because of that, you should keep your body from these things. But second, positively, he commands them to glorify God in their bodies. So glorify God in your body, he says in verse 20. How, how do we do that? I think the how is very well expressed by a few verses that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, to the, the, to the Thessalonians. He says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. How do we glorify God? We learn to control our own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. So how do we glorify God, church? We walk in the light. We grow in self-control, in holiness, in honor. We, we name the truth. We say, hey, this has been in my life. It ought not be in my life. I need to flee from it. I need to repent of it. That's the first step. And then, by the grace of God, walking in the Spirit, clinging to the truth of His Word, we grow in walking in the light, in walking in self-control. We grow in holiness and we grow in honor. Amen? Now, I want to just conclude with a few brief pastoral remarks. And I'm just going to ask that as I offer these remarks that, uh, <clears throat> that you bow your heads, close your eyes, just for the next few minutes. All throughout this passage, Paul has been addressing Christians. And I am not ignorant of the fact that there are many of us here today whose lives have been marked in one way or another by sexual sin. You might be here and right now you are feeling the weight, the burden of a particular sin in your past. Or maybe there have been many sins. Maybe you're presently involved in sin. Maybe you're here and you committed adultery against your spouse. Maybe you're here and you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you have come here out of an utterly licentious lifestyle. Maybe you're here and you have been sinned against. and You are carrying shame. I could go on. But if that's you, I want you to hear me very clearly. There is no sin so great that Christ's blood cannot cover it, cleanse it, and like divine detergent, remove its stain. And if you are a Christian, there is no sin that is in your past or even your present that is powerful enough to separate you from the love of God 
or to cancel out the work of Christ on your behalf. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're here and you're burdened and you're convicted, I want you to know that Jesus bore your shame on the cross so that you would not have to bear it any longer. I want you to know that Jesus took the guilty verdict for your sin so you could be declared innocent today. Jesus suffered the punishment for your sin so that you would not have to suffer under it any longer. Jesus took upon himself the Father's righteous wrath against your sin so that you would not have to bear it for eternity. And I want us to be reminded of who this God is that we worship. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. If you need your heavy burden lifted, if you need to be delivered, then I want to invite you to approach the throne of grace to receive mercy in your time of need. I want to invite you to right now, before we approach the communion table, to pray the prayer of repentance and faith with me. So if that's you, pray with me. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that my life has been marked by sexual sin. I confess that I stand before you feeling dirty and ashamed. But I'm so thankful to see that you have made provision for my sin and shame to be removed. And I confess right now, I, I, I express to you my confidence, my reliance on the work of your son Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross to carry my shame, to carry my guilt, so that I could be declared innocent. I pray that you would restore to me peace, wholeness, and life. Thank you for your grace. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.